Most of us have grown up with a religion that deals with the universe of many parts. God in heaven above, earth and human life beneath, hell and Satan under the earth. I'm sure that many of you have changed to an omni view of God. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omniactive. You probably have a lot of affirmations to prove it. Sometimes as we go along, we come to understand that many of these affirmations that we accepted so glibly become mere words. And the concept of God becomes what uh, Santayana calls a floating literary symbol. So the question remains, what do you really believe about God? You know what you believe by how you find yourself acting. When you pray for healing, you're looking for help from God as the great healer? Or do you seek the awareness of the wholeness of life? When you have a particularly naughty problem, do you approach God as the heavenly answer man? Or do you know that in your transcendent self the answer is known in you? The old attitude of duality dies hard. We find lingering remembrances of it in much of our conversation. A fine metaphysical writer reflects a lingering sense of the old duality when he says, when you have a problem, you hold to the truth, and in time, pop, God comes in. If he were to realize the perception that he has intimated, that this is kind of manipulating God, this teacher would probably say, no, that's not right. God does not come in, for God never went out. But he said it. He wrote it. It reveals this carryover of this duality of God in life. To reveal how widespread is this God of the skies belief, no less than the Unity Education Department of Unity School has been following a year-long theme, getting close to God. But the symbol that they've chosen to use might have been picked up by someone in the advertising or art department. The symbol is the rendering of the masterwork of Michelangelo showing a massive man-like figure of God as we see it on the Sistine Chapel the ceiling in Rome, reaching down and touching the outstretched hand of a man. They wonder if they intended to imply they're reaching out there to God, but that's the perception that the reader and the viewer can't help but receive. I call attention to this because someone has asked me after reading this, what are, they, what are they saying out there? What are they doing? Where are they going? Sometimes it's very difficult to recognize how we follow the old traditional belief, how deep-seated it is in our consciousness. We need occasionally to refresh ourselves with the vision of Paul's sermon on Mars Hill from 17th chapter of Acts. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, all men life and breath and everything. It is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. How could the God of the skies concept have survived such a clear revelation? Ask the average person if he believes in God. He'd probably answer, well, of course I do, of course. Ask him what his conception of God is. 
what he thinks God has to do with his everyday life, he would rarely have anything sensible to say. For most persons, God is referred to chiefly in cliches such as the man upstairs. Someone up here loves me. I go to meet my maker. Most of us have grown up with a primitive concept of God. A big man, big and good, but still a big man, living in the universe. This often implies a life and death struggle with evil and the forces of darkness. Friends, the preacher welcomes this congregation with not all that uncommon statement. We're here today to unite in support of our God. He has a great battle on his hands with the devil, and if he fails, it will be the end of all of us. What an anemic concept of the universal process. To really become established in the new insight and truth, it's necessary to break out of this box of self-limitation. Check our thoughts, analyze our feelings relative to God, our relationship with the universe. Shocking as it may seem, the God of our fathers is no longer adequate. Life in the New Age calls for a larger thought of God. It's important to resolve the hang-up about evil. Christian churches, by and large, have made the force of evil almost the central focus of theology. God and the devil wage their eternal struggle, and the outcome is quite uncertain. The truth is, of course, there's only one presence and one power, God the good omnipotent. That's an affirmation that is basic in our study of truth. Evil is not a power with an identity of its own. Evil is simply the concealment of God. What we call sin is simply the frustration of potentiality. Much of the confusion that is rife in Christian theology comes from questionable spiritual scriptural translations, such as the fourth chapter of Matthew, the first verse. In the authorized version, it reads, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This depicts God as a co-conspirator, Actually, leading the person up into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, putting him into the devil's hands. Of course, it's a poor translation. More accurate translation renders it, Then was Jesus led by spirit into the wilderness, and there he was tempted. The wilderness, you see, means a place of growth. And in Jesus' desire to evolve and to unfold the Christ within him, he was led to this place of growth and overcoming. And he experienced something that all of us experience from time to time in our growth. He experienced what I call inertia. The resistance to change. You probably go through this process yourself in confronting certain positive, absolute ideas of truth which sound perfectly right and good and logical to you. As you work to apply them, something in you says, he thinks he's going to get a hold of me, I, I let him know that I'm in charge here. As if to say something positive and something when you calls back and says, oh yeah? This is what I call inertia. It's interesting to know that this same process, the same experience of overcoming, is true of Jesus too, because Jesus, after all, as we're told, was tempted in all points such as we, yet without sin. So we find then that when we look at this statement of Jesus in the wilderness, he was in this place of growth, and the human consciousness still had some overcoming to do. 
Of course, the traditional portrayal of the wilderness experience shows the devil with horns and red coat, forked tail, prodding Jesus to give in to weakness. Have these artist renderings, they're a throwback to the old traditional idea of duality. Some of you are acquainted with the Aquarian Gospel. I'd like to, to make clear that this is not scripture. There's some inspirational thoughts channeled through a man called Levi. There's some very interesting insights in it. I recommend it only if you recognize that it is not scripture. It's some very helpful insights. In the Aquarian Gospel, it reads, the only devil from which man must be redeemed is the lower self. If one would find his devil, he must look within. And when the demon self has been dethroned, the savior love will be exalted to the throne of power. The devil and the burning fires are both the works of man, and none can put the fires out and dissipate the evil one but man who made them both. You see, Jesus was not God becoming man for a while, but man becoming God on the quest to release his imprisoned splendor. It's good to note that Jesus was tempted. The key to his life is not that he could not be tempted, but that he would not. Be sure you have that clear realization. Not that he could not be tempted. He was very God, as tradition has told us. There was no way he could be tempted. Not that he could not, but he would not be tempted. He was not very God. He was man in the process of experiencing that very Godness within him, that wholeness, that oneness. Taking charge of his mind, he spoke commandingly of the human self that was exerting a downward pull on him. Get thee hence, for there's only one power, and him only will I serve. He was not talking to the devil out there. He was talking to the human consciousness within himself that was unruly, holding back. From primitive times, man has tried to understand life, and especially the illusion of what he called evil. Our problem is that we've had difficulty seeing life as a whole experience. We have forever seen in part, as Paul says. The word Hades comes from the root word which means not to see. Blindness to reality, in other words. Primitive man was certain that the lightning was chasing him. The river drowned his brother on purpose. It was all attributed to an evil force. This dualism carried over into the Judeo-Christian religion. It's so firmly rooted that a recent pope dedicated an entire speech to the subject of the devil from which we read, and I quote, Satan truly exists as an active force in the world. He's a dark and enemy agent, a terrible, mysterious, and fearsome reality, a live, spiritual, perverting, and perverted being, the hidden enemy who sows errors and misfortunes in human history. This kind of teaching only lowers God to a second-rate power. It elevates evil to the level of transcendence. This concept, this consciousness, has spawned all kinds of weird beliefs, such as Satanism, called the Satan worship, witches, ritualistic orgies, and hodgepodge of Oriental and Russian superstitions. I suppose you could add, filled with a lot of bunkum and hokum. In times of confusion and uncertainty, the unhappy, the credulous, the vaguely neurotic, and those who are always looking for some inside knowledge, find an easy rationalization for uninhibited behavior and the release of all sorts of pent-up frustrations. The belief in an evil force, which we see evidence in bumper stickers to say, the devil made me do it, prevails through a lot of society. A convenient cop-out for people and for churches, often a defense for criminal behavior. 
another story of the girl who was telling her mother about a new boyfriend. Her mother was asking about him. She says, is, is he nice? Oh, yes, I like him very much. And she's asked me to marry him. And I says, well, what are you going to do? I can't marry him. He doesn't even believe in God. Oh, he doesn't even believe there's a hell. The mother said, go ahead and marry him, dear. I'm sure that between the two of us, we'll convince him that he's wrong. And that's the only hell we'll ever know. <laughs> Again, how great is the need to expand our God concept? This means we will have to boldly confront all the legends and symbols of our religious faith that keep, keep us from experiencing communion. One such symbol was the ark, which was supposed to house God. The Israelites carried God with them in the, in the ark and they, as they went into battle. If they were captured, they were shattered. In time, the ark was given a fixed place in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem, which soon came to be known as the House of the Lord. In the Holy of Holies, the ark, which contained God, was always there. Interestingly enough, this idea still prevails. Great throngs of people stream into churches and synagogues, ostensibly to get close to God. But if you feel the presence of God in the church, it's because you're there. You feel it. You're there. The feeling is the presence which you brought with you. It's always with you. You feel the presence in a meeting such as this. Not because it's here in the hall. It's because it's in you. When many of us gather together in this consciousness, we feel the presence, and the presence becomes a dynamic force in this hall because we're a force in this hall, because we're here. When we're broken with the God's tradition, Emerson says, and cease to worship with our God of intellect. God fires us with his presence. Break with the God of tradition. Cease to worship the God of our intellect. The old traditionalists would say, that's terrible, that's, that's atheism. Emerson must be an atheist. He was called an atheist by many people in his day, because he was quite shocking. And we come to understand Emerson as he's been one of my gurus, we find that he was probably one of the most spiritual men we've ever known. This is an important aspect of God, breaking with the tradition of the concept, turning away from the intellectual construct, the floating literary symbol, as Santiana says, experiencing the presence which is always present, never absent. As the Unity Principle puts it, because God is omnipresent, the whole of God must be present in his entirety at every point in space. God is present where you are, not just as a ray of light, but the whole of God, all life, all love, all wisdom, all present at the same time where you are. It's an insight that the intellect can hardly grasp. A tremendous realization of the allness of God. Meister Eckert, the amazing medieval mystic monk, had a great concept of what he called being. He says, if God is all existence, it is impossible that anything should exist apart from him, for this thing would be outside being. All things, therefore, in their substance are themselves God. Whatever else they possess in time and space is only an appearance. The central prayer of Judaism, out of which Jesus' concept was born, is the lovely Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the fundamental realization of God is principle. It is a principle of 2 plus 2 equals 4. It certainly cannot be a contrasting force of anti-math tempting us to get 3. If we follow this tradition concept of God out there, it's ridiculous extreme. There's a rampant force of evil down here. Every time we try to work out a problem, there's something forcing us, pushing us, prodding us to get the wrong answer. There are no wrong answers in the principle. Mathematics is exact. Same as gravity is a force that's everywhere equally present. Gravity doesn't lure you to jump off the window and to fall off the curb. It's there as a process, a force, ever-present. It holds you on the ground. It keeps you in your chair. It keeps you balanced. Then when we get out of tune with the reality of gravity, that we fall out, fall over, and it becomes a negative force. It's important that we see this. The great insight of St. Augustine. I use it often. God is a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. A circle whose center is everywhere, whose circumference is nowhere. I once had a class in truth. I mentioned this and someone said, oh, yeah, that, that's great. I could draw a picture of that. <laughs> so this person come forward in the classroom to a piece of chalk on the blackboard. The person started out to draw and all of a sudden a circle is, circumference is nowhere. The center is everywhere. How do you draw that? In a moment of imagery, pick a spot to focus on. Maybe a bench in the park, a lovely retreat cottage in the high mountains, or it may be out in space, beyond the solar system where there's no moon or sun, looking out in all directions, seeing stars. Wherever you are, get this insight that you're a center of the whole universe, and it all stretches out from you. There's no circumference, no limit. In the face of any conflict or problem or emergency, you can recapture that image. Right where you are, in your work, where you're having harassment or problems with the added responsibilities you've been given. Or physically, when you find it difficult to get up in the morning, your head aches, your whole body seems to be pulling downward. It's a beautiful thing to get still. Center yourself, the center of the universe. There's no place where God is not. The whole of God is present in his entirety at every point in space at the same time. The whole of God's life is present in your body. The whole of God's substance is present in your financial affairs. The whole of divine intelligence is present in your mind when you're facing a difficult problem. Get yourself centered in that realization. It's an image that you hold in consciousness. In the face of any conflict or problem or emergency, get that image of being at the center. No, no circumference. No limit. As Plotinus says, the whole universe comes rushing, streaming, pouring into you from all sides while you sit quiet. When you grasp the idea of the allness of God, get away from the thought of God out there somewhere, localized. See God as a divine intelligence that is present everywhere, equally present. And you can know this. You can see yourself at the center of the whole. It's a wonderful process, rushing, streaming, pouring into you from all sides while you sit quiet. There's no place, no situation, no person 
But you cannot focus this metaphor of a circle whose center is precisely at that place. But the limitlessness of the universe present is the help in every need. Till you realize and begin to practice this oneness, which means God in you expressing as you, you must say, your God is not great enough. Quite often, I tell a person who's outlining some problems and needs, you need a larger concept of God. You've got God out there somewhere and you have a problem and you're unconsciously reaching across the separation trying to beg God and plead with him to come to your help. But the more you practice the absence of God in this way, the more you're actually keeping yourself from demonstrating the fullness of divine process within you. Get a larger concept of God. Then you get this concept of oneness. You find this deficient God concept will give rise to all sorts of doubts. You may find yourself saying, reflecting the old idea of the God in the skies, how could God allow the baby to be killed? How could God allow the wars to rage? How could God have permitted this accident to occur? All that comes out of an incomplete awareness of God. Mistakenly looking at God through your challenges, holding the challenge up, this terrible thing has happened. You look through the challenge, look out to God. How could you have let this happen? Where were you? Where did you go stay on the job? Almost as if you're telling God that he must prove himself. God is not a performer who must continually audition for a new part, prove himself worthy of the role. God has changed his principle. Not a way of doing certain things, but a certain way of doing all things. God is a ground or depth or primal force in which you stand and by which you see things rightly and deal with things effectively. So instead of trying to see God through your problem, the important thing is to begin to see your problem through God. In other words, you begin to see things through spirit-colored glasses. The most important facet of the God concept that you're working to expand is the great idea that Jesus articulated and demonstrated, the idea of God in you, the kingdom of God within. However, lest you lose the thread here, God is not in you like a raisin is in a bun, a button is in a glass of water. Because the raisin and the bun remain separate entities. And the button and the water are always two items. We tend naively sometimes to say, God is in me. Wherever I go, God is in me. It's true. It's so important that we understand what we're saying. In many ways, we're saying, I succeeded in getting God out of the skies. I've got him down inside me somewhere. Sometimes I have a hard time finding him. Sometimes he goes into the far reaches of my body and I don't know where he is. So we haven't really gotten rid of the old concept at all. God is in you as the ocean is in a wave. Think of that. God is in you as the ocean is in a wave. The wave has form and shape and movement. You can see it as a great breaker on the ocean with the surf riders ride these giant waves graciously poised and beautiful expression into the shore. But there's no way that you can be separated from the wave can be separated from the ocean. This is oneness. There's no way you can be separated from God. The wave is the ocean expressing as a wave. You are the activity of God expressing as you. 
But you expand the field of vision of this ocean and wave metaphor from the perspective of a fish floating through the water. Where's the ocean? Can the fish find the ocean? Can he know the ocean? Can he become aware of it? Probably not. It's the milieu in which he lives. See, he floats in it and swims through it all of his life. Man, however, has basic intelligence. He comes ultimately to understand himself in the universe in which he lives. Here he says that the ocean is nowhere. But you will know it is also now here. Take that word, it's an interesting word. Separate the W from the H. Nowhere, now here. God is nowhere. If you're trying to find or contact God out there, the green pastures kind of God with a majestic figure with white robes and a long white beard lolling on white billowy clouds, you can never find him. God is nowhere. But if you be still and know, you find that God is now here. Not meeting you from without, but flowing forth from within. Not doing things for you, but working through you. Give some time for reflecting on that wave as the ocean expressing in a wave. There's a Bible paradox that has confused people for ages. First chapter of John, 18th verse says, No man has seen God at any time. Very emphatic. No questions. No God, no man has seen God at any time. Strangely enough, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No man has seen God, relates to the God is nowhere. The pure in heart shall see God, relates to the God is now here. Understand the difference? God is not a person to be found anywhere. Yet when you get into an awareness of the one, and your oneness with that one, begin to see with a spiritual perspective. You see from God consciousness. And you see God in all persons and all experiences. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They see from the consciousness of God. You don't see God out here in a, in a human form, or in a godlike form, an apparition or some outward movement. You feel an inward oneness with God, and they see from that consciousness of oneness. They project that seeing wherever they look. In Sanskrit, the word I is the word A-Y-I-N. It literally means fountain. This is the key to the most creative kind of seeing, a spiritual perception. The eye does not simply record impressions received from out there. And we understand the whole creature and the intelligence that works in man. The eye is a fountain that projects consciousness like a searchlight. In the highest kind of seeing, you just look at a person and he feels the healing influence. When you're seeing from the consciousness of oneness, you don't have to cry prayers of exhortation for one about whom you're concerned. But often the person who prays with a loud voice, prays long and hard about a problem, is praying to the absence of God. He's trying to reach across the separation. Oh God, please help me. He may shout in a loud voice, he may mumble, he may cry, he may beg and plead, but God is nowhere. When he gets still and realizes his oneness with God, God is in the milieu in which he lives like the fish lives in the water, all-knowing, all-present, all-active, wholly present, wholly active. 
and he gets still and knows his oneness. How does that consciousness of oneness? He sees. And seeing becomes a fountain of truth. He projects that consciousness. The thing on which you look in this consciousness of oneness feels that consciousness and is blessed by it. Many of you discovered this. You're in a room, perhaps even in a subway. You're surrounded by strange people. You get this stillness, this consciousness of oneness. Look at a person. Perhaps a person crippled, a person with a look of despair on their face, a person with that sense of apathy that's so often present. Look at him in that consciousness. Not in personality, not with the ego. Projecting that awareness of oneness. You'll invariably see that person look up and smile. This is not just thought transference. It's something more than that. It's a projection of the greatest power in the universe. It's the key to blessing and healing. Even if separated from distances, by distances, look outward at a person from the consciousness of oneness with God and behold the perfect child of God. It's almost as if the projection of this light relieves the appearance of darkness dissolves the mask of unfriendliness and hatred and bitterness and confusion and beholds and salutes the child of God. Namaskar. The divinity within me sees and experiences and addresses and salutes the divinity within you. I was once criticized by a clergyman with destroying God, reducing prayer to bold, brazen affirmations. This always seemed kind of funny to me. How can one destroy God, even reduce principle in any way? Anyone who believes that God can be destroyed has never found God. He's involved in what Santayana calls the floating literary symbol. If you know God, this is nothing capable of destruction. You're one with the divine process. What I do is challenge the person to destroy his limited intellectual construct of God. That's not destroying God. Like saying, I have God out here somewhere. You show a picture on a blackboard. G-O-D in a circle. I believe in God. But as long as I believe in God, I can't believe in God, the wholeness of God. I'm believing in something out here, a three-letter word. So what I often say is a, a triangle. Praying to God. Praying to God about a problem, going the roundabout way. I say, how much better it is to eliminate the middleman. Break with the God of tradition. Destroy the God of the intellect. Erase this G.O.D. on the blackboard. Get rid of it. As long as you have that out there, you're involved in the absence of God. It will always be a problem. Break with that God of tradition. Know your oneness with the presence of God. The presence which is always present, all present, can never be absent. You're in it. You're moving through it. It's ever with you. It can't be absent from you. From a natural point of view, I'm very happy when the man says, I'm destroying God. Because I hope I can help people to destroy God in the human consciousness, the three-letter word. The person can know God is principle, God is presence. And one may say, and it's a good question, 
How can I pray to a principal? Now you're beginning to take a step in progress to get involved in the larger field. You don't pray to principal. First you're challenged to get a new insight into prayer. Because prayer is not reaching to God or asking them from God. But knowing the truth, realizing oneness. Dealing with the God is now here metaphor. The old idea was that prayer was a means of trying to reach God somewhere out there in the nowhereness of space. Try to get him to listen to us, to come to our aid, solve our problems. The truth idea is we want to understand the principle of oneness and our oneness in the one. That the presence is present as us and we draw upon the infinite potential within us by which we solve our own problems or dissolve them. Note, if you will, how Jesus prayed. When he was called to the tomb of Lazarus where his friend had been dead for three days and in the tomb, he didn't stand at the tomb of Lazarus and plead with God to return his friend. He simply declared his oneness with God. I am the resurrection and the life. And in a loud voice, he called forth, Lazarus, come forth. How could he be so sure? Why is the mathematician so confident of the mathematics principle? Simply because it is principle. It is principle. He knows it is unerring. We would never think of accusing the principle of math for an error in computation. It never occurred to Jesus to trace the death of Lazarus to God. It is in the narrow view of God that we talk about God's will in a time of bereavement. God has taken my loved one home. Suffered to accept it because it's God's will. Nothing we can do about it. Jesus said, It is not the will of my Father that one of these should perish. The will of God is always and only the ceaseless longing of the Creator to perfect that in which He is created. It's always the idea of healing, direction, prosperity, blessing. That thy will be done means that the wholeness, the allness expressed in me is an eachness. Jesus, you remember, used the sun as a symbol for God. It causes its rays to fall upon the just and the unjust alike. He gets into the hospital bed, the prison cell, the palace and the hovel. Anywhere a person admits it. So with the God principle, there's no spot where God is not. And because God is principle, you can never be exhausted, never strained or drained. An illustration I use often. Just imagine that every man, woman, and child in the world, some four billion, more or less, could draw on a piece of paper or perhaps draw in the sand Work out in his own mind, if necessary. Two plus two, draw a line. He gets the answer four. Four billion people working the problem at the same time. Can you imagine the principal calling out, ouch? There's no strain or drain. It's ridiculous. All can find the same answer using the same principle. The same way we understand our relationship with God. There can be no strain or drain upon God. Right often a person will say, I've asked God for so much. I guess I better work it out alone this time. God has too many other things to do. He's got to work out the new experience with the Russians. He's got to take care of the difficult physical problems we have. He's got to take care of our economy. Certainly I can take care of my own needs. How important it is to know that God is an allness, 
is ever present within the eachness of man. An active force that is ever present, never absent. We live in it, move in it, and have our being in it. Because this is fundamental law, it is true of every person as well as Jesus. It's true even of a pilot and Judas and every common thief. It has to be true, or it's not principle. You can't have both ways. If God is principle, God is an allness that is present equally everywhere in all persons, in all situations. Every person is a spiritual being. Every person. Even including that one next door that you wish would keep quiet. The person who's harassing you at your work. Every person is a spiritual being. A child of the universe. Only if you know it, even fewer succeed in expressing any marked degree of the perfection of the Christ in dwelling. But it's when our God self is concealed and frustrated and we tend to experience the shadows of human consciousness and misinterpret them as outside evil forces. We need to say, as Jesus said, get thee hence, there is only one God, him only will I serve. I love the vision and the imagery of Wordsworth who describes the sense of the God presence in this beautiful poem from which we read part. He says, a sense of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns in the round ocean, in the living air, in the blue sky, in the mind of man, motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. I'm going to invite you now to be still. Why don't you join me in an experience of imagery? You know, this time, whereas normally it's a matter of praying to God, I like to feel that the activity of God in us is an intelligence that already knows our needs, is aware of our growth, is aware of what's in our heart. Instead of praying in words or praying in a way that could be construed as trying to contact God out there, just get still and through an imaging process, get a sense of the greatness within you. I want you to go through an exercise. You go with it all the way. Don't resist it. Let the image take hold of you. It'll give you a whole new insight of your relationship to the universe. In your image, look off in the distance. See a light which is sort of like a sun-like object. The sun off, off beyond the horizon. Look at that sun that ball of light, that fiery orb. See it coming closer. Closer, closer. As it gets closer, it gets larger. Larger and larger. It begins to take over more of the horizon around you. As you come closer and closer to this fiery orb, soon it covers your entire sky. You can't see anything else but the light of that object. See yourself confidently going right through that object, right through it, like Alice in Wonderland going through the looking glass. When you come out to the other side, no longer do you see a sun or a light. All is light. You don't see light, you see from that light. This is enlightenment. Now you see from the perspective of that light process, 
And it could be said, as Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light. Take this exercise, use it at home from time to time. To stretch your spiritual muscles. Get an idea of the allness of God. You go through this perception which is three-dimensional, which may be intellectual. Right through it. Come out the other side. You no longer see anything, you see from something. No longer see the light, you see from the light. And you're enlightened. Enlightenment doesn't mean getting a lot of information, a lot of words, a lot of wisdom. Because that gets us all hung up in intellectual constructs. Enlightenment means being in the light, seeing from the light, like a fountain, seeing light. That's enlightenment. You do well to enlighten yourself every morning before you go off to work. Getting your perspective so that you become a fountain for the projection of that light. It opens your way before you. It becomes an influence on people and situations. It enables you to go through the experience of the day with light and guidance and success and fulfillment. Let's just give thanks for the larger thought of God. And accept the commitment to work from day to day to get a larger and larger perspective of the intelligence of the universe. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Amen.